You know, from my experience, most people I know didn't like history in school. Um, there's a little bit of a hum up here. Hum, bum, bum, bum. Kind of like an echo ringing, a ringing in my ears. Maybe it's, there we go. That's a little better. All right, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. And uh, I didn't bring my glasses with me, but I think I can make it. My wife's not here to chastise me, unfortunately. She's not feeling well tonight, so. All right, uh, we're, I think, on, as we're counting Lesson 11, I've just kind of done handouts for you guys each week that you can keep or use a scratch paper or whatever you'd like to do with it, but uh, it's always nice to have something to follow along with at least, and uh, if you keep up with these, then you'll have a, a timeline that you can look at. Obviously, much, much more has happened in history than we're recording here, so we're just trying to hit some highlights um, as we go through the biblical timeline. Um, so I've given you uh, two pages, uh, one, one page front and back uh, that begins at 975 B.C. and I think goes to about 626 B.C., so, you know, in one night, we're going to cover 350 years of history, basically. I've also given you a handout that shows the prophets. And um, we're going to probably look at that at, at the end of the lesson here. And we may do some more on that. Uh, maybe some specific highlights about the prophets. Just to kind of give you a better idea um, so dispersed throughout this timeline, there are prophets prophesying. And I'm not identifying them throughout this timeline, but I would, I think, like to go back uh, since we are in the era now of the prophets um, and maybe hit some of those highlights and maybe just use that as a separate lesson time, um, maybe next week or the following week. But I wanted you to have the handout there so you can, you can see. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for, Lord, the record of history that, Lord, is a record of your, his, your work in creation, your story. That's what we call history. It's his story. It's your story. We thank you, Father, that we are part of your story. We thank you, Lord, that you have graced us and given us life to live and to be a part of your plan and your purpose in creation for humanity and that our lives are here, Father, um, to bring glory to your name. Father, I pray that you would uh, teach us even as we look at history and help us to understand how you are working throughout your creation to bring about your plan and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, we're not going to quite get there tonight, and we're probably not going to quite get there next week. Um, but when we get uh, past the Babylonian captivity and we get to the point in time on the, on the, the timeline where the prophet Daniel is prophesying, uh, there's some very interesting things for us to look at there, um, just in a very short window of time, uh, to look at Daniel's prophecies concerning history are quite fascinating. Um, and so that's coming up, but we're not quite there yet. So we ended last week at 975 B.C. 975 B.C. saw the death of Solomon after he had reigned over Israel. For 40 years. And his son's name was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was made king upon the death of Solomon. 
And it was during the reign of Rehoboam that Israel became divided. So in 975 BC, with the reign of, of, of uh, Rehoboam, Israel divides. Um, so if you remember the story in the Bible, because Solomon had gone after, uh, he had so many wives. So this was a test we had in our history class. What was the downfall of Solomon? Unfortunately, I think all my history students got this answer wrong. They all answered gold was his downfall. It's not a bad answer because the, root, the love of money is the root of all evil. So it was a very um, logical answer. But the correct answer was women. Solomon's downfall was women. And when Solomon took his 750 wives and all of his concubines, he began to worship the gods of these wives. And Solomon, in his latter days, departed from uh, the Lord. Now, when you read... Um, when you read Ecclesiastes, it appears Solomon came back in his latter days. But he started off well, but he spent very many years of his life and his rule um, in sin against God because of his idolatry, which was brought about by all of his wives, uh, whom he built temples and altars and things so that they could worship their own gods. And he began to worship those gods with his wives. That was the downfall of Solomon. As a result of that, God ripped the kingdom from Solomon. And so there was a guy named Jeroboam uh, who God sent a prophet to. And the prophet told Jeroboam, um, God's going to give you the kingdom and take it away from Solomon because of Solomon's sin against God. But he's not going to utterly take it away. Why? Because of the sake of his servant David. For the sake of the Lord's servant David, he's not going to take the kingdom totally away from Solomon because he promised David that he would always have a man sitting on uh, the throne. And David was, of course, of the tribe of Judah. And so when Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam became king and Solomon was the wisest man on earth, his son Rehoboam wasn't so wise. He was, in fact, very arrogant. And in his arrogance, when the, the people of Israel, when the men of Israel, when the elders of Israel came to Rehoboam and said, will you loosen the bonds and lighten the load that your father Put upon us. So, in building the temple and doing all these things, Solomon conscripted Israelites and put them under heavy burden. Now, it was a sin to enslave Israelites. Uh, and, and it wasn't exactly slavery, but it was conscription, and Solomon uh, used Israelites and basically put them under labor to build all of his building projects. And when Solomon dies and all of his building projects are done, those elders of Israel come to, to uh, his son Rehoboam and said, you know, your father uh, was a great man. He built great things. He's dead now. You're the king. Will you loosen the, the load on us? And we will serve you faithfully and be committed to you. And if you remember the story in the Bible, he, uh, Rehoboam had two sets of advisors. He's had some wise old guys. And he had his young crew that he ran with. And he asked the wise old guys, what say you about this request from the elders of Israel? And the wise guy said, it is true. Your father did great things, was a hard man, put these guys under hard labor, and they faithfully served your father. We say, lighten the load, and they will be loyal to you and serve you. And then he goes to his young guys, what do you say? Hey, don't show your weakness. Be even harder than your dad was. And that's the advice, unfortunately, Rehoboam took. But the Bible says that God did that because God had already purposed to divide the kingdom. So Rehoboam comes back and he says, if you think my dad was hard on you, uh, just wait and see what I'm going to do. And so at that point, those elders said, oh, we're done. We are leaving the kingdom. And Jeroboam was in place, the man God chose. And so Jeroboam takes 10 tribes 
and they separate from Israel. And so this happens in right around the same time, 975. Rehoboam, basically, he ruled over Israel. I mean, he ruled over Judah for 17 years, and it was at the beginning of his rule that the kingdom divides. Jeroboam rules over Israel. Now, this is where it gets confusing for people. Judah... What, what was Israel, 12 tribes all together, divided. And they divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom were the 10 tribes. And the easiest way is to remember, it was all of the tribes except for two, Judah and Benjamin. So all the other tribes were Israel, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Israel, I mean, Jerusalem was in Judah. And so the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin now made up the southern kingdom. The other ten tribes were the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel. It's just what it was referred to. Sometimes it's called Ephraim. Sometimes it's called Israel. Sometimes it's called the northern kingdom. But after the kingdoms divide, when you're reading your Bible and it talks about Israel, that's the northern kingdom. Judah will always be referred to after the division. It's always referred to as Judah. And this is where we get the word Jews. The southern kingdom, so, so when they divide in 975... You have this divided kingdom, and the southern is called Judah. And it was ruled by Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and then Jeroboam takes the other ten tribes, and they become Israel, or the northern kingdom. And each of these nations, there are two different nations, Judah and Israel, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. Each of these nations have their own history. Each of these nations, God sent prophets to each of these nations. They were all still God's people. So politically, geographically, even spiritually, religiously, they were divided into two kingdoms. But God considered both of them his people because they were the people made up of the 12 tribes of Jacob. So that happens in 975 after the death of Solomon and Rehoboam takes the throne. The kingdom divides. Um, then in 899, Elijah is prophesying, and he prophesies the destruction that would befall Ahab. So who is, when he's prophesying to Ahab, who is Elijah prophesying to? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Ahab was the king of Israel. Yeah, the northern kingdom. And somewhere around there, 899, Elijah prophesied the destruction that would befall Ahab. Remember, Ahab's wife was Jezebel. And that, that prophecy of the ultimate destruction of Ahab and Jezebel happened upon the occasion of Ahab one day in his depression. Uh, he's up in his bedroom sulking and his wife Jezebel comes in and says, why are you so depressed? And he says, I'm depressed because I want the vineyard of Naboth, my neighbor here, and he won't give it to me. And she says, you're the king. You can get whatever you want. And so Jezebel arranges for the murder of this man, uh, falsely accused, and they stone him to death. And then she gets the deed to the vineyard and gives it to her husband. Elijah the prophet comes and he says, you wicked man, this is what's going to befall you. Three years later, in eight or two years later, in 897, uh, Ahab dies in battle. He gets uh, the king of Judah to come with him, Jehoshaphat, and they're going to fight the Assyrians. They go into battle. And uh, you remember this story? It's kind of an amusing story. Uh, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, comes and he says, Hey, he said, Do you have any prophets around here? Any prophets of the Lord? And uh, so they had like a, all these prophets come. And so they're saying, should we go up against the uh, enemy or not? And all the prophets are saying, yes, go. 
God's going to give you the victory. And there was something about Jehoshaphat that caused him to have, I guess, some type of a red flag or something, because he, he says to Ahab, do you have any prophets of the Lord here? <laughs> and he said, yeah, there's this one guy, Micah, but he never prophesies anything good about me. Well, bring him. And so they bring Micah before the two kings. And should we go up against the enemy? And Micah says, oh, yes, O king, go up against your enemy and God will give you the victory. And Ahab says, why don't you ever, you, you, why don't you tell me the truth? It's like, well, it's what everybody else is saying. He said, okay, I'll tell you the truth. You're going to go up against him and you're going to be killed. And uh, it's going to be the end of you and the end of your kingdom. And the end of your posterity, because the, what Elijah had prophesied was not only would Ahab die and Jezebel die, but their posterity would come to an end. And in 897, uh, the, Ahab, the king of Israel, was killed. If you remember the story, he decides not to wear his kingly garb because he heard what the prophet said, and he obviously believed what the prophet said. So he says, I'm going to dress like just a common soldier, not even an officer, and King Jehoshaphat's got his kingly stuff on, and they start chasing him because what the Assyrians ordered was, don't go after anyone except the king of Israel. And they went after Jehoshaphat, and they realized it wasn't Ahab. And the Bible says a, uh, a soldier randomly shot his bow, and randomly, randomly, it goes right between the armor and pierces Ahab in the heart, and he dies and bleeds out in his chariot. And when they bring him back, true to Elijah's prophecy, the blood, the dogs licked up the blood in his chariot. And then later, after Ahab dies, and they come and they throw Jezebel out the window before they can come down and get her body to bury it, the dogs had eaten it, and the only thing left were her skull in her hands. Maybe her feet, too. I don't remember. But everything else had been eaten by the dogs. I know it's kind of gross, isn't it? But it is in the Bible. Uh, it's, what God caused, it's what God caused to happen to fulfill his word because these were wicked, evil people. And they murdered a lot of innocent people, and they did a lot of horrible things. Um, and justice did not escape them. So we fast forward down to 776 BC. So while the prophets of Israel are going through the land prophesying the word of the Lord, the Greeks are over there on the Greek peninsula and they are having their first Olympics. So the first Olympics begins or, or is, is, uh, is held in 776 BC. First Olympiad held in Greece. And do you know why they had an Olympiad? Do you know why they even competed? So the uh, Olympic Games were actually the things that... Um, so at that time in 776 BC, Greece is not a nation. So Greece is not a nation as we know it. Greece is ruled, um, there are individual what's called city-states. So Athens was a city-state. Sparta was a city-state. If you've ever seen the movie 300, it is based on a true story. And those 300 soldiers holding off the Persians in that mountain pass were from the city-state of Sparta. There was no unified Greece at that time. And these city-states were constantly battling one another. Uh, and these Olympic, these Olympic uh, competitions were actually how they trained for war. So they would do running to train because uh, a marathon, who knows what a marathon is? How how long is a marathon? Huh? 26 miles. Do you know why it's called a marathon? Because when the Greeks were fighting the Persians, 
and they actually beat them at the naval battle of Salamis. They knew that the Persians would try to sack Athens on their way back to Persia, and they sent a runner from the plain of Marathon, and he ran 25 miles to Athens to warn the Athenians to let them know that we beat the Persians in the battle, but we believe the Persians are going to basically stop by and sack the city because the army was there and the navy was there, and sure enough, that's, that's what happened. And this guy ran 25 miles to warn the, the Athenians and to declare that they had won the battle. And he, in, in the battle, he ran from the plain of Marathon. That's why it's called a marathon. Um, and it's why it's about 25 miles long, huh? So he went to Ithaca, he went, yeah, he actually died. He died. He got there and he died because he basically ran himself to death. Um, and so in 776, they hold the first Olympiad. And so what would happen is these city-states would take a break from their war and they would come together and they would compete in these athletic events. Um, my kids loved the fact of this next little tidbit about the, Olympia, of the Olympic Games. So uh, trivia question, who was not allowed to view the, Olymp the Olympic Games? Women. Do you know why women were not allowed to view the Olympic Games? Huh? Wasn't it like too exciting for them or something like that? Well, it might have been. Uh, they were not allowed to view the Olympic Games because the men competed in the nude. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Way too exciting. <laughs> too exciting. Might have been. Yes, the men competed in the nude, and so there were no women allowed at the Olympic Games. So the Olympiads were an exclusively male competition. And they had primarily five events, which soon became what's called our pentathlon. Uh, and so our modern Olympic Games have added a lot of things, but it started out with five basic events, running, throwing, um, the, it wasn't the discus, but... Um, you know, like throwing weights, running, throwing a javelin. Um, wrestling was a big deal. And so um, that was where our Olympiads started. We're going to fast forward a little bit on the timeline. Do you know why? What, what, do you, what have you noticed about, I know we're kind of parking on the Olympiads here. What do you notice about the Olympics? When you watch the Olympic Games today, is there something you notice about both the winter and the summer games? But they do have clothes on, and there are women competing, not just watching. But what else do you what else do you notice about the language? There's no Greek. There is English, and there is another language. There's, there's two languages that uh, are used for the Olympic Games. Nope. French. French and English. You know why they use French? Because it was the French who resurrected the Olympic Games. It was a French uh, guy who basically, it was the French who started the Olympics again. And so um, all the Olympics, summer and winter, You'll hear French and English. Maybe if you're watching, you know, the American Network, they might not always include the French, but it's always there. And you'll hear it when they're making their announcements and, and things. And that's why, because the French gave us the, the Olympics. They gave it back to us. They resurrected it. Um, all right. Well, we're going to move on now to um, 760 B.C., so Jonah is prophesying to Nineveh in 760 B.C. Now Jonah is uh, one of those unique prophets. He was sent not to the people of Israel. He was sent to the Gentiles. He was sent to Nineveh uh, to prophesy, 760 B.C. 753 B.C., uh, there's another date, 748 B.C., the city of Rome is founded. So 
while the Greeks are having their Olympiads, um, I mean, they're 20 years into it, and the city of Rome is founded on the Italian peninsula. In uh, 753 to 748 BC, it was founded according to the oldest Roman writer, ancient Roman writer. His name is Fabius Pictar. He says that Romulus founded the city of Rome. Do you know the story of the founding of Rome? The two twin brothers, Romulus and Remus, who were supposedly raised by a she-wolf because the father of these twins uh, cast them out and left them to die uh, because he did not want them. And a she-wolf supposedly took them and suckled them and then Romulus and Remus grew up, and Romulus murdered Remus, and then he went on to found Rome. The poet Ovid wrote this about the city of Rome. He said, a city was born, which who then would have thought that since the whole world has in subjection brought? So this city founded there around 748 to 753, started out a city, and we'll see around 550 B.C., we're not there yet, but it, it becomes a republic. So this city grows. Um, there were two people groups that were responsible for founding this city. They lived on the Italian peninsula. Anyone know what their names might be? The Etruscans and the... Should be very obvious, it's the language we're learning the Latins, the Latins and the Etruscans. They came from different areas, but this, where Rome is on the western side, it's called, um, oh, what's the name of that plain? Anybody know? Man, I'm the history teacher and I forgot what the name of the plain is. But it is the plain there uh, where it's very conducive for growing crops. Uh, there's water. Uh, and so these people migrated there to this plain in western Italy, and they founded a city there, uh, a bit inland on the river there. What's the name of the river? Huh? The Tiber River. The Tigris is in, uh, yeah, the Tiber River. And so there is uh, the city of Rome is founded. Now, this is really important. We mark this because what Rome ended up doing is still impacts us today. We just learned this in, in our history lesson today. We, we learned about the founding of the Roman Republic, uh, what Rome went from, uh, and, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, we won't talk about that right now because it's just a city right now, the city of Rome. Then in 721 something very significant happens. Israel falls to Assyria. When I say Israel falls to Assyria, what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? The northern kingdom, the ten tribes. Now, you've, sometimes you hear people talk about the lost tribes of Israel. When, when they talk about the lost tribes of Israel, they're talking about these ten tribes. Because Judah and Benjamin continued... For almost a hundred more years before they're judged, but those ten tribes were carried away into Assyria. Now, uh, I wish I had a whiteboard or a map. So, when Israel falls to Assyria, those ten tribes of the northern kingdom are carried away and they're dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Where was the Assyrian? Empire. It was centered in a place. Um, the name of this place is a Greek name that means land between two rivers. Anybody know what it's called, what it is? Mesopotamia, that's right. So Mesopotamia means, it's Greek, meaning land between two rivers. Mesopotamia, also called the Fertile Crescent or the Cradle of Civilization, is between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. Nineveh was on the Tigris River. Babylon was on the Euphrates River. 
So the center, the capital of the Assyrian Empire was Nineveh or Babylon. Well, before you answer that question, when they carried away the, the, the Israeli king, I mean the, the, the king of Israel, when they carried Hosea away, the Israel king, the king of Israel, they carried him to Babylon. So which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire? Nineveh or Babylon? I got a Babylon over here. I got a Nineveh over here. The, huh? You got, this side says Babylon, this side says Nineveh. But the correct answer is Nineveh. So we might say, well, then why did they carry him to Babylon? And this is because Mesopotamia, there were two main powers, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. There were other people there. The Persians were there. The Medes were there. But the Assyrians and the Babylonians were the two main powers of Mesopotamia, and they were always fighting for control of the region. Well, at this time, the Assyrians were the power. And Babylon was under Assyrian rule. And for whatever reason, when they carried Israel away captive, they carried the king of Israel to Babylon. That's where they took him. Um, and, and this is where we get the rub between the Jews and the Samaritans. Because when they deported all of the Jews out of Israel, they imported Assyrians to come and live in their homes, farm their fields, take over their vineyards, and then those Assyrians, the, the people that were left in the land... The Jews that were left in the land, they intermarried with them, and that is what produced the Samaritans, that race of people, the Samaritans. And the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They, they considered them dogs. They considered them unclean. They were just like Gentiles to them because they intermarried with the Assyrians, and they felt like they were traitors. Um, and so that happened in 721 B.C. Then, um, this, then King Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. So there is an Assyrian king. His name is Sennacherib. And Sennacherib goes down and he defeats the Egyptians. This is what... Um, Eight years later, he goes and defeats the Egyptians. And as he's coming back from defeating the Egyptians, he stops at Jerusalem and he says, Hey, I'm going to take over this city. And this is where uh, the Assyrians are outside and the, the Jews are on the wall and the Assyrians are talking to him. And the representatives of the king say to the Assyrians, Don't talk to us in Hebrew. Talk to us in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the Assyrians. So you hear Aramaic, and it is often said that Jesus more than likely spoke Aramaic because Aramaic was the somatic language of the Assyrian Empire. And many, including the Jews, many of the people spoke Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic are not very different, they're both Semitic languages. But Aramaic was the language, and so you remember they said, speak to us in Hebrew. Uh, don't speak to us in Hebrew, because we don't want the people to hear. And, the, of course, they spoke to them in Hebrew. So they were, they were multilingual. They could speak, so the language of the Assyrians was different than the language of the Hebrews, though there were similarities but there must have been enough difference that they figured that the people would not be able to understand what they were saying. But, of course, they wanted them to understand. And long story short is um, God sends his death angel and kills 125 Assyrian soldiers and um, delivers Israel. Hezekiah is deathly ill, and he prays to the Lord, and God extends his life for 15 more years. And... Um, at this time, Isaiah is the prophet who's prophesying to Judah. And the Babylonians 
send a delegation to King Hezekiah to congratulate him for his recovery from his deathly illness and the fact that they weren't taken over by the Assyrians. And um, when they are there, <clears throat> Hezekiah shows them everything, shows them all the treasure of his house, all the treasure of the temple. Isaiah comes and he says, who are those people that just came to visit you? Oh, those were the nice Babylonians. What did you show them? I showed them everything, showed them all the treasure of my house, all the treasure of the temple. And Isaiah says, those same people will come back and carry away everything that you showed them. But Isaiah says to him, in your remaining years, you will have peace. And so in 713 BC is when this happens. Now, at the very same time, while this is happening over in the Middle East, here in North America, the ancient Native Americans that we commonly call them the mound builders, the mound builders, they are already inhabiting North America and they are building mounds and we, we have, these mounds still exist. So for instance, at Cahokia in Illinois is massive mounds that were built by these people while Isaiah is prophesying to Hezekiah and Judah, these guys are over here in America building mounds. And then in, um, now this, this was a little bit later in history, uh, but the Hopewell Indians in Ohio built this thing called the Serpent Mound. And if you look at it, it's 1,600 feet long. And from an aerial view, it looks, it's a serpent holding, like eating an egg and then he's got like a, I don't know if it's a rattlesnake or not, but you can, you can see his tail. It's amazing. And these guys didn't have drone footage and video. Uh, they had no way to get up high enough that we know of. There, there, are, there are people who practice what, what, the, um, what the establishment calls black archaeology. And, uh, you know, when they dig up little trinkets of gold that look like modern-day helicopters and jet fighters, and we can't figure out how people thousands of years ago would have known what a helicopter looks like or a jet fighter looks like. It could be that pre-flood, the world was much more um, advanced than we might think that it was. Um, but that's a different story. But, um, so the Native Americans are very active here. Uh, it's 700 B.C., while the prophets of Judah are also active, and kings and world politics are playing out over in the Middle East and in the center of these great empires that have literally impacted all of the world. And those empires will eventually impact the people living in North America at 700 B.C., uh, because the, the explorers that ultimately are going to come to America and, and establish this land, um, they were able to do that because of all of this history that we're talking about that transpired over 2,000 years ago. So history matters. It's very important, and it has long-term effects. Um, 698 B.C., so while the mound builders are building the mounds in Cahokia, Hezekiah dies. King Hezekiah dies, king of Judah, and his son Manasseh takes the throne. Now, King Hezekiah was a good king, and he served the Lord, but his son Manasseh was not a good king. In fact, the scripture says he was the most wicked king to rule on the throne. Now, though it's interesting, it's interesting about Manasseh. He ruled Judah for 55 years. He takes the throne there in 698. In, six, in 677 B.C., 22 years into his throne, into his rule, uh, the Assyrians come back to invade Judah, and they actually capture they're not successful in taking over Jerusalem, but somehow they capture King Manasseh. 
And Manasseh is carried away captive to Babylon, this wicked king. But do you know what happens? It's very interesting. While he's imprisoned in Babylon, he has a, a conversion. He repents of his sin. He realizes the wickedness that he had done. And he repents while he's imprisoned there in um, in, 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 by the Assyrians. These, these are the Assyrians. And he's carried away to Babylon after he's captured. And he repents and he is restored to his throne. And when he's restored to his throne in Judah, he, he affects reforms and he tries to undo much of what he had done that was so wicked. He, he tears down altars. He tries to set things right. And, and he did outwardly. So he made idolatry against the law. He took down all of the, the things. But it was so ingrained in the people. So he enforced that rule outwardly, but it never got into the hearts of the people like it got into the heart of Manasseh. So he started out really bad, but he actually ended Good. He finished strong, but it wasn't enough to turn the nation. And then in 643, Manasseh dies. <clears throat> and then um, his son rules for a couple of <clears throat> years, and then he goes away. And then Josiah, King Josiah, begins to rule. Now, uh, and, and Josiah takes the throne when he's eight years old. Now, when you're eight years old, what happens when you take the throne and you're eight years old? Who's ruling the kingdom? It's not the eight-year-old boy. So there are what's called uh, regents. A regent would rule. It could be a mom. It could be a parent. It could be the high priest. It could be, it would be an advisor who is there. So for Josiah, he was a very godly king. He didn't have a godly father except that, you know, his father came around in the end, but his father died when he was a very young child. It was the priests who really helped Josiah. And so they basically discipled Josiah. So when he turns 16 years old and he starts making decisions, he brings great reforms to Israel. So in, in that time, the people had gone back to outwardly worshiping these idols and false gods. So even though Manasseh tried to make things right, the heart of the people were still wicked. And so when Manasseh dies and then his wicked son takes the throne for uh, two or three years uh, before Josiah becomes king, uh, in those times before Josiah is old enough to do anything, they've returned to full idolatry. But when Josiah is 16 years old, he begins to affect reforms in Israel and um, tears down all the altars, all the idols, uh, destroys all of those things, and, and is beginning to repair the temple what, does anyone know what happens as Josiah is repairing the temple? So they found the book of the law. Yeah, so they're, they're working, and these workers find this scroll, this book. And they take it to the king, and the king doesn't really know what it is. <clears throat> and so the king goes to someone. Do you know who he goes to? Anybody know? He goes to the prophetess, Huldah. Huldah was a prophetess. And King Josiah takes the book of the law to Huldah, the prophetess. And he says, what is this? And she says, this is the book of the law. And, you, and she tells him, you are the king. You're supposed to read this. You're supposed to read this and put this in your heart because this is how you're to rule the nation. And so... Josiah knew that the idolatry was wrong, but he didn't have the law. He didn't have the word of God. And so Huldah the prophetess teaches him the word of God. 
And then, then they have the public reading when they stand in the court of the temple all day and they're reading from the book of the law and the people begin to weep because they have never heard the, the word of God. It's not like today where they have Bibles on their phones and their iPads and collecting dust in their bookshelves. People didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the scripture. And so and the, and they had years of idolatry and now the word of God had been restored. And so they're standing there reading the word and Josiah, they have the priest go out and begin to help the people understand what they're, what they're saying. And so it was Huldah, the prophetess, who puts the king on the right track and the word of God is restored. They realize that they're supposed to celebrate the Passover. And so Josiah initiates a Passover celebration. The Bible says like never had been held before uh, because they, they didn't do those for years. They hadn't done them. You know, Passover... Unleavened bread was one of those feasts where God says, every male is to appear before me in the place that I've chosen for my name to dwell forever. Well, that was Jerusalem. That was where the temple was. But they had abandoned that because they had lost the word of God. They had forgotten. And there was no one keeping up those traditions. Well, all of that was restored with Josiah. There was a great revival, but kind of like Manasseh, it didn't really get into the hearts of the people. And so Josiah, at age 39, dies in battle. He's a great king doing all these reforms, but he makes a very unwise decision to go to war with Egypt, and he's killed in battle. Um, we're not quite there yet. 626 B.C., four years after Josiah begins to rule, the city of Nineveh is destroyed. Now, back, um, I should have marked it. I think it was somewhere around 647 B.C. There was a great flood of the Tigris River. And uh, it washed out like two and a half miles of the wall around Nineveh. It took three days to walk across Nineveh. Nineveh was a huge city. The wall around Nineveh was said to be 100 feet tall. It, it was massive. Um, but it was made of sandstone. And when this great flood of the Tigris River happened, it took out like two and a half miles of the wall around Nineveh. It didn't immediately uh, result in its overthrow, but eventually resulted in its overthrow. They rebuilt it with wood, uh, but it really wasn't very, it wasn't the same. And so in 626 BC, uh, the Babylonians, along with the Medes and the Persians and Scythians and other tribes, assembled against the Assyrians at Nineveh, and they overthrew the city of Nineveh. And it was a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the general leading the army. He was a Babylonian. And after they overthrew the city of Nineveh, Nebuchadnezzar was named the king of Babylon. At, with the overthrow of Nineveh, which resulted in the overthrow of the Assyrian Empire, Babylon became the ruling power of Mesopotamia. So Assyria was done with. That empire was now gone. Babylon was now the empire, the power of Mesopotamia. And Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon, the ruler of Babylonia. And he had a son. Anybody know his name? Nebuchadnezzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's all I have on the timeline for today. Uh, and, and so we're, we're about 20 years away. So after, 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar overthrows Nineveh and Babylon becomes the power of Mesopotamia, it's going to be about 20 years and Nebuchadnezzar, his son, who becomes the king of Babylon is going to come against Jerusalem 
And, uh, and, and we'll talk about that next time, and we'll talk about uh, what led up to that. So if you, uh, if you think about Israel, the northern kingdom, God sent prophets. So let's look at, our, uh, let's look at that other piece of paper I gave you. <clears throat> that have all of the prophets. So the first prophet was Samuel. So Samuel represented the first of something and the last of something. He was the first prophet, but he was also the last what? He was the last judge. So Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and he became the first prophet, and it was Samuel, the prophet Samuel, who anointed Saul king of Israel, and then he would also anoint David king of Israel. And so um, Samuel, Elijah, Elijah is prophesying to Israel the, uh, the unified kingdom. Elijah then uh, takes the mantle of Elijah and also prophesies to Israel. <clears throat> Elijah and Elisha. So we have what we call parallels in parallels throughout the scripture. Elijah and Elijah are a parallel for two other people that you're familiar with. Not Old Testament characters, but New Testament characters. Well, one spans the Old and the New Testament, but one is introduced to us in the New Testament, but he's spoken of in the Old Testament also. Who would Elijah and Elijah be a parallel to? Yes, John the Baptist and Jesus. So Elijah is, is a parallel to John the Baptist. And Jesus affirms this when he says, if you can receive this, Elijah has come. And he was talking about John the Baptist. Uh, and, and the parallel to Jesus between these two prophets is Elisha. Um, Elisha did more miracles than Elijah. There's no miracles recorded that John the Baptist did. Um, and so there's a parallel between Elijah and Elisha there with John the Baptist and Jesus. Jonah was a prophet sent to Nineveh. He wasn't even sent to his own people. He was sent to the Gentile nation of Assyria and to the people of the city of Nineveh. Amos. Amos was a fig farmer, uh, and he was sent to Israel. Now, it was in this time uh, when the kingdom is divided. And so Israel, uh, Amos is sent to Israel, now, here comes Isaiah, and Isaiah, by the time Isaiah is prophesying, the kingdom is already divided. Isaiah was sent to Judah to prophesy to Judah, but we know that he also, um, it's not that they didn't speak to, but to, to people of the northern kingdom or to any of those rulers, but he, his message was primarily to Judah, though Isaiah prophesied about Israel being carried away by the Assyrians. Um, Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus the Great, who would come after the Babylonians. Um, and we'll look at all that when we get there. So this list of prophets, um, it, it tells you who they're sent to. And so we'll kind of keep this sheet and we'll kind of use this as we go through history and at certain points we'll talk about um, uh, the work of the prophets and what they're doing and how it relates to history, especially when we get down to like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, um, who prophesied concerning the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Jeremiah prophesied pre-Babylonian captivity and during. Ezekiel is prophesying during the captivity. He is a captive. Uh, prophesying about the Babylonian captivity. He's in one of the exiles in, in Babylon, and that's who his ministry is to. Um, all right, any questions about anything we talked about tonight? 
Any thoughts? Any anything? Yeah, so after the, you know, the time of the judges, after Samuel um, dies, he's the last judge, uh, you've got a lot going on in the kingdom. Um, now that, um, we'll get to the place where, um, and maybe we'll try to, I'll try to dig this up and look at this, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, I don't know if that doesn't. I don't know if that means that they never celebrated the Passover individually, um, but it certainly means. It certainly seems to indicate that there was no national celebration. It, it, now, remember, it wasn't at Passover. It was at unleavened bread that they were commanded to appear before the Lord. But unleavened bread is the day after Passover, and so this is why, for all practical purposes. Um, the Jews would flock to Jerusalem for Passover because they had to be there for unleavened bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread became a term, a catch-all term, for three feasts that existed. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those were three separate feasts. But they all occurred, simul not simultaneously, but together. So, for instance, if Passover is on a Friday, unleavened bread is on Saturday. And first fruits is always on a Sunday. So, if Passover is on a Wednesday, first fruits is still going to be on Sunday because it always occurs on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. And the first day of the week is Sunday. It was the first day of the week for the Jews, what we call Sunday. And so those, those feasts happen right there together. And so unleavened bread was a seven-day feast. So Passover was a one-day feast. First fruits was a one-day feast. But those one-day feasts, well, first fruits, happened in the midst of, of unleavened bread. And so you celebrate unleavened bread for seven days. And so they're there in Jerusalem. And so... Um, it's, it's very possible and probably likely that the priests and devout Jews would have celebrated the Passover, but there was not a national celebration. There was not this every man appearing before the Lord uh, at the tabernacle or when Jerusalem and the temple was built at the temple until Josiah... And they discover the book of the law, and he reinstitutes the, the Passover. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a great point, because Israel would have been in disobedience for not keeping God's word, which was, appear before me. And the temple would have been the place that they would have appeared. All of these things contributed to the judgment that came upon both of those nations. For Israel, the northern kingdom, it was the Assyrians that God used to judge them and carry them away. For Judah, um, you know, 60 years later, uh, no, actually 100 years later, no, actually, I'm so sorry, would have been 100 and, and, uh, 116 years later. It was the Babylonians that God used to judge Israel. And all of these are reasons why he did. They had forsaken the Lord. All right, what else? And remember, when did God give them? We talked about this uh, when we talk, in our you know, series on worship. Remember when they came into the land, and they came, they came in at that place called Shechem. And Shechem 
was down in the valley between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And from Mount Ebal, the curses were pronounced by six of the tribes. And from Mount Gerizim, the blessings were pronounced by six of the tribes. If you keep my commandments, keep my word, you'll be blessed. If you don't, everything that happened to Israel, everything that happened to Judah is exactly what God said would happen to them if they abandoned their word, the, his word and stopped walking in obedience to them. They were carried away and um, they suffered greatly because of their disobedience. All right, any other thoughts? Well, it started when God judged Solomon because of Solomon's idolatry, and he just, he, God purposed to take, to rip the kingdom from Solomon, but because of his promise to David, he didn't take all of the kingdom. He kept the southern kingdom because he promised David he would always have a descendant on the throne. And that descendant, ultimately, the ultimate promise made to David was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so it was a judgment because of Solomon's idolatry, his sin. And so he took 10 of the 12 tribes away from him and left the two southern tribes there. Uh, yeah. Solomon didn't see it happen in his day, and that's what the Lord told him. He said, I'm not going to let it happen in your day, but this is what he told him what would happen. And he tried to kill, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. That Jeroboam fled to Egypt. And so after Solomon died and Rehoboam takes the throne, Jeroboam had been living in Egypt because Solomon was trying to kill him. Because Solomon knew that God had given the, the kingdom to Jeroboam. And so Solomon's kind of reverted to Saul. Like, I'm going to kill you. God's done this, but I'm going to kill you. Same that Saul did. And so Jeroboam goes to Egypt, and he lives with Pharaoh. And when he finds out Solomon's dead, he asks Pharaoh. He says, let me go back home. And Pharaoh's like, why would you want to leave me? You've got everything here. I want you to stay here. He goes, nope, I need to go back home. So he comes back, and he takes the ten northern tribes and establishes the kingdom of Israel. That's why they divided. It was God's judgment. God did it. Yep. Any other questions? Wasn't one of the tribes inside of all of Judah, uh, like the area, I can't remember which one, was totally encompassed by Judah? Um, that's possible. Let's see. You had Judah and Benjamin. Um, let me see if I can find a map. Anybody know the answer to that? Let's see. So Their colors aren't real helpful here. <clears throat> I don't know. There is, it looks like, um, if I'm reading these colors correctly, Simeon may have been down in um, where Judah is, in the midst of Judah, the tribe of Simeon. But if that was the land they were given, Simeon um, 
and that's a that's a good point. Maybe uh, we should look that up. Um, I don't know that they they remain. Uh, I don't know if some of them may have left and went to the north, but it does look like Simeon uh, did have a, a land allotment that was surrounded by Judah. That's a that's a great question. You got any other questions? Let's let's we'll look that up. Any others? Yeah, you where you have major and minor? Uh, not just major and minor, but... Well, it's, it's, they're ordered in... Well, major and minor is, has nothing to do with the message. It's the length of the book. So they're not put in chronological order. They're, not put, they're put in, in order by the, the length of the book. Well, yeah, so that might be the difference between... The major and the minor. No. I don't know why, but I'll, I'll see if I can find out. What else? Okay. What tribe was encompassed by Judah in the southern kingdom, and why are the prophets ordered the way they are in the Bible? Anything else? Judah, yeah. That, that's what it looks like on my color-coded map here. So what happened <coughs> to Simeon after the uh, kingdoms divided? All right, any other? Any prayer requests tonight? <coughs> 